Great. So we're off and running. Tony Williams, thank you very much for joining me um, from Hong Kong, where I believe it's a uh, slightly warmer situation than we have in the UK at the moment. 28 degrees by the sounds of it. Yes, very warm today and been warm for a few weeks, actually. It's very unseasonal, even for Hong Kong. Yeah, I'm a little bit jealous. Not quite that sort of temperature in the UK at the moment. But um, yeah, I really appreciate you joining me. And um, yeah, we've got some Pleasure. really interesting topics to talk about around the evolving workforce and resourcing landscape, um, how companies can drive towards true strategic workforce planning at the centre of that. Loads of important stuff to cover. Um, I'm sure we're probably going to go off on a few tangents as well, which I'm looking forward sure. to. <laughs> um, before we get into that, you've obviously got a wealth of experience across HR and business transformation, and you're doing some really interesting stuff now. Would you be able to just give a little bit of background on what you're doing now, but also your journey and how you kind of got to the, got there and, and what you've experienced along the way in terms of that path? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Johnny. Um, so I guess the simple headlines is 30 years in banking, of which 20 were in senior HR positions. Um, mostly RBS group, but as RBS expanded and then contracted, that was quite a journey and a hell of a lot of business transformation starting clearly with the acquisition of NatWest in 2000 and, and then the ill-fated acquisition of Avian Amro and then what followed with the exiting of many markets. And obviously now since then, it's been rebranded into NatWest Group again. Uh, I, once I left that world, I set up my own consultancy six years ago with a business partner, Will Excel, and spent most of the first four years doing business transformation projects um, culminating, I guess, with the um, acquisition of Jutronics NV, a tech services company, ostensibly headquartered in Holland, but actually most of its business was done out of Spain, an apps development business, and then a, a workspace uh, engineering business throughout Northern and Western Europe, and with it, little pockets of cloud and, and other activities that it did elsewhere. Did that for 18 months, including being chief people officer, and then slipped straight from that into being the COO for the global HR function in HSBC, and did about 19 months there before moving to Hong Kong full-time and starting my coaching business. So I split my time now between consulting, all sorts of transformation-based consulting and um, coaching, and increasingly doing executive coaching, particularly in a virtual world. And, um, and with the executive coaching side of things, what, what, are, the, what are the kind of um, key areas that just keep popping up that are kind of the main themes that you're seeing at the moment? That's a great question, Johnny. I think, um, so leading through these very interesting times, I think is, you know, probably number one, um, how to engage people remotely or virtually um, and some tricks of the trade around how to be a leader in, in, in those circumstances. Um, some of my coach clients are fairly new into roles, so helping them be successful as soon as they can be in their new roles. And again, most of that's been done in a pandemic world. So, um, so you know, having to vary some of the things that you would normally do, like spending the first 30 days going around meeting all your staff is slightly easier, but also possibly slightly less effective without that kind of human kind of... Um, connection that you can get in, in real life that is harder to do in virtual circumstances. Um, 
And then I guess a couple of people who are leading functional change and some of the normal challenges that you see in functional change, some resistance, some how do I convince the key stakeholders that we're doing a good job and, and how you present your story in terms of the transformation, both upwards and downwards within the organisation. So it's, it's a nice mix of, of different circumstances, to be honest, John. Yeah, and it's really interesting you bring up the point about virtual versus in-person. Like, obviously, in uh, in the UK, with the kids went back to school a week and a bit ago, and it's interesting to see people um, almost, there's a, there's a transition to going back to seeing lots of people in person. And I, I can I can see the same happening from a business point of view. Like, when, it, when the first pandemic first hit and the lockdown kicked in in the UK, you know, I was used to doing lots of Zoom calls and stuff anyway, but a lot of people weren't. And a lot of people were really fatigued by it, found it really, really difficult. There's part of me that sort of thinks that when things ease off again, the opposite will happen. <laughs> people are so used to, they got conditioned to doing stuff via video conferencing. And then when they got to start meeting people in person, they're just going to feel completely exhausted from all the social interactions. I think it's going to be quite an interesting transition. Yeah, I think as always, Johnny, there's not one answer. I think, I think you know, different people are different types of people in terms of how they interact with people. I mean, to use the... I guess the simplest thing that people know a lot about is, is obviously Myers-Briggs and introversion versus extroversion. Introversion being able to kind of be a self-starter, extroversion needing other people to generate some energy and then to perform. And as a quite strong extrovert being, you know, working from home 12, 13, 14 months now with a subdued level of interaction with clients other than on Zoom or Teams, um, is really challenging, right? Whereas if you're, you know, if you're naturally somebody who's good at working on your own, self-starting, it, it, it tends to be slightly easy for you. However, that said, I think your your question's a good one because when when we are all able to go back to the office properly, I do see a real need for everybody to try and connect back. So I think we'll see a, almost a complete swing of the pendulum back. And then I think over time, it will come back to something um, between the two. I, th I think people have enjoyed working from home, but not 10 months solid. And I think, I think the new normal, to use that horrible phrase, the new normal will be, you know, two days a week from home, three days a week in the office. For those that can and those that have the choice, I think a lot of people I talk to see that as their kind of long-term balance yeah, it makes sense to me that it will normalise with some sort of blend. And I just think that, you know, in general, humans are very adaptable. Um, and hopefully this just kind of adds to our skill set rather than kind of polarising one way or the other. Um, totally. OK, so so some of the some of the topics we're, we're going to talk about today, um, they, they kind of centre around this idea of true strategic workforce planning, understanding what the business priorities are, linking that clearly and pragmatically to what needs to be done, working out the best way to do it and getting it done effectively and realizing great results from that. Um, and I think there's, there's various factors that play into why companies um, find that very difficult. But, but if, you, if you were to kind of summarize what you see in terms of when you've, when you've looked at that type of activity and you've been involved in that type of activity a lot yourself, what do you see as the kind of the main hurdles that historically have stopped people really progressing with that? Yeah, I think it's a real, I mean, it's a really tricky question because, you know, the challenge of strategic workforce planning has been one that's been um, dogging organisations, I guess, for, for a better phrase, for at least 20 years and probably a hell of a lot more. 
certainly my experience goes back to, you know, I guess the early 2000s, we were talking about strategic workforce planning and the need to do better as an HR function in the early days of, of, of RBS, just after it acquired NatWest Group. And um, so I think that what are the challenges? Historically poor technology. Um, I think historically a HR function that oscillated between not really being interested and only being interested in part of the agenda, namely resourcing. I think um, not really having a clear idea on how strategy links to operating plans. So really being on the back foot in terms of calling out key skills um, is something that I've experienced again through 20 years plus of, of organizational life looking at this topic. And then um, I guess the final thing would be to hold the business a wee bit to account to say, how good a, is the business at even forecasting resource requirements in its broadest definition from the business plans that it has? Um, and you know, part of that's HR capability, not asking the right questions and probably not having the right tools. And then the other half of that question really is, has the business really thought about what it wants to achieve or is it, you know, emergent and, and, you know, no better example than when I was in the investment bank. And, you know, inevitably you would look quarter to quarter at the resources, the markets, the revenues and the profits. And, you know, it was, it was a standing joke in investment banking that you would hire all the way through from, you know, February to July and then you'd start reducing your staff from August, late August through to the end of the year. And it was every year. Um, and you could set almost, you could set your calendar by it in terms of, you know, is this the week we start to reduce headcount again? So, and that, that was typical in the, in, in the investment banking industry, not just in, in the you know, particular organizations I was party to. Um, so I think, I think, you know, business has to be held to account as well in terms of that should, in some business line sectors, that real short-term focus, again, doesn't help anybody with strategic workforce planning. Yeah, and I think when you look at the, the different um, engagement models or modes of getting work done, um, you know, whether it's hiring a permanent employee, engaging with contractors or temps, or getting work, outsourcing work to be delivered under a statement of work, um, these things to, to understand how most effectively to use all available resource models, the business really needs to nail what it actually needs to get done. And I, I feel that's something that things like the pandemic are probably going to be a positive driver towards that because it creates this urgency of what are we doing? Where are we going? How much are we spending? What are we getting for that money? You know, people, there's this, there's no coasting. No coasting can really be uh, justified. Um, but it, but it does also raise the question of where the, where the resource centre is controlled or who controls that, which function. Because obviously you're going across HR, operations, mm. procurement. Um, where do you see that kind of uh, balance of, not really power, but balance of responsibility? You know, does it, does it ultimately sit with the CFO? You know, how do you see that being distributed within organisations? Yeah, I, again, a great question, Johnny. I think um, I'm probably still fairly ambivalent about where it physically sits in terms of does it report up into which stovepipe. Um, I guess there's a few things that we should probably chat about in terms of the, 
the things that are important for whatever this resource centre, as you call it, whatever the resource centre has, it, there's some attributes that it should have. I think through my experience um, in the latter days of my RBS experience, um, the equivalent of a resource centre would have been the way that we had an overview of headcount top down. And that was really a co-production between the COO of the, of the investment bank and myself as the chief people officer. And that was, you know, it was once a week for three, four hours, literally looking at all of the ins, all of the outs, um, all of the requirements. And clearly post global financial crisis, a lot of the banks were having to do a hell of a lot of remediation work, uh, much of which was technology driven as well. And that really created a drain on resource requirements and resource needs. And, you know, it was very hard to balance that with kind of keeping the show on the road as well as as we were at the time contracting the organization and exit some some product lines so having a single view of that was really important um, and that's probably the closest in my rbs life i got to a single view of strategic resources albeit it was in an operational context at that point um, i think when 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 we'd acquired jetronics um, we had some very hard financial targets to achieve very clear sponsorship from the CEO and we put in place a resource model which is like a resource center. I chaired that, the COO was there, the CFO was there, the CEO occasionally participated and the presenting different business divisions and heads would come along with their business requirements and this was a business that was in about 16, 17 countries so it was also relatively global. Um, and we used to do it again, three hours a week, every Wednesday, and we literally went through line by line every resource request, and that was either permanent resources, and it would, in that business at that time, permanent resources would also include quite a lot of project work, so we had quite a good project um, perspective, and then obviously some of that project work had to be outsourced to, to consultants, contractors, and I remember at one stage we got to something like 18 definitions of resource that were all factored into that model. Um, I chaired it. We also looked at gross margin of every project that, that the organization did to prioritize where we would put resource. And we did that really painful for some some people around that process. But but we hit the financial targets that we needed to hit and, and actually was a good model in the context of what it was. It was a good model of trying to get the resource center into concept into place. And then, and then I guess in my HSBC experience, you know, it was much more of a business-led HR support, COO support. The group COO was very kind of strong in challenging, but it was it was more of a traditional model with the CFO just looking at headcount, the COO looking at the kind of the total picture, but not really in that kind of proactive strategic resource management. And, and as I left HSBC, it was still an exam question they were still trying to solve for the truth. Yeah, I mean, when you when you talk about the model that you had at, at Jetronics, that sounds pretty sophisticated. It was mm. probably possibly fairly manual compared to what you might be able to do. It's amazing what you can do with an Excel spreadsheet, Johnny. Exactly. But but the the clear direction from the C-suite and the and the way that that was yeah. driven. Yeah. Um, just makes a lot of sense but you know the business had a, a clear objective and i 
I just think that when you look at strategic workforce planning and when you look at different resource models and the, there's a lot of effort involved in working out what do we really need to do? It's all very well having financial targets and hitting budgets and just, but for a business to actually kind of put the brakes on and say, what is it we're actually looking to achieve? What's our objective? How are we going to get there? What are the component parts we need to get there? How do we break that down into pieces of work and how best do we get that done? That's a lot of effort, but it's yeah. hugely valuable. And I think obviously the, the the drivers for that within Jetronics was the fact that you had these crazy financial targets. I've been in that situation before and it focuses the business and it focuses the mind very clearly. Um, and I think the pandemic is offering that opportunity and those drivers for a lot of businesses at the moment. It does make sense and it ties into all of the kind of leadership concepts about having a clear vision of where you want to go and getting yeah. everybody on board with what you're doing to try and achieve that. It's like when you hear, you know, top sports professionals talk about their clear focus and that every day, everything they do has to contribute towards their goal. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of this sort of stuff is driven by a clear sense of urgency. So I think now is a great time for companies to be able to to address that. Um, but it is it's quite it's a big, lumpy piece of work, because even you know, generally when you when when people are in a role and they're trying to get stuff done, you know, they don't want to sit there and write a job spec, for example. And so when you start getting into other modes of delivery, you know, working out what actually needs to get done and how best to do that. I think people see that as an initial hurdle to get over. Oh, feels like a lot of work, um, just defining the aspects that need to be delivered and what success looks like. But ultimately, if, that, if companies can achieve that, it's so pragmatic in terms of delivery and how it affects the business performance. It's got to be a good thing in my mind. But um, again, it's got to be driven by, um, by the right stakeholders. Um, I think if we look at HR and procurement teams within most organizations, they're generally pretty lean. They're generally pretty stretched. They've got a lot of different responsibilities. There's often some kind of crossover. Um, obviously, tech can be very useful in helping make that more efficient and scalable. But I think when you look at the lines of responsibility of resourcing versus recruiting versus talent acquisition, there's, they're, they're not the same, are they? Um, in terms of how those things are split up and how they can be kind of brought together, how do you see, um, what do you see as potential ways for organizations to kind of map that out successfully? So these things are being dealt with in their individual nature, but also being centrally um, used to drive the business forward. Yeah, I mean, you made some great points there. I think just to kind of undermine one of them, I think, I think in reflecting before, you know, speaking today about my own experience, I think having a very clear purpose that the organization is trying to hit is probably the thing that gave more impetus than, than you know, just a general, as you put, pointed out, you, here's, some, here's a bunch of normal targets that every business has to achieve. Whereas if you've got a very focused CEO on a very single focused target that drives into how you spend your money, 85% of costs was, was was people in that business. So inevitably getting a hold of that was was really important. So I, th I think I think, you know, just to underpoint underpin that point, because I think you make a very good point. I think generally speaking, I think um, the way that the functions bring come together is really important. I think one of the characters needs to be strong and then pull in everybody else so you know if you've got a you know particularly strong commercial hr lead then they can pull in 
your procurement, your finance, your operational resource, etc., to kind of bring that single version of what you're trying to achieve. I think in terms of the um, broader point that you raise, um, I, I do oscillate on this this one a wee bit. I think you make you know you make a very good point about whether HR people well you inferred it you didn't make the point the HR people really want to be running around writing job descriptions for the business because the business can't really be bothered to do so well no and is a job description or a job requisition fundamental to part of the strategic resourcing journey absolutely and that, you know I've seen too many in too many organizations not just the ones I've kind of occupied myself but the ones I've consulted with Many organizations just struggle with, well, whose accountability is it in the first place to even name the resource requirement, never mind about then who's leading on filling it. I do believe that your HR function, even by becoming talent acquisition, not resourcing or in the US staffing, that is one aspect of resourcing. And I think the HR function has really focused in on by specializing ever more and ever more talent acquisition is really about hiring talent from the market the clues in the word acquisition talent management is having a better feel for the skills you've got today and growing those skills usually by learning and development interventions but no nobody in the hr function really has got the holistic view other than the chief people officer and the chief people officers then looking within their function to say who can i ask to lead out on this because it's talent acquisition, it's talent management, it's some business partner activity in terms of defining the need in the first place. It's your operational activity that supports fulfillment of, of particularly um, talent acquisition. So it, it's, it's just a bit messy. And I think to date, the technology that's been deployed to try and help solve this problem has been fairly limited and even even your cloud-based kind of fourth generation actually a lot better hr technology products like workday like success factors even oracle fusion and others they're all trying to effectively get the engine room of hr data a lot cleaner and then you can plug and play or build on the modules that you need that all said, strategic workforce planning is still not solved for with the, the kind of the, the, those technology suites. You then need to look into the market or look to other solutions to bolt on, to pull the resource from your HR data, pull the resource probably from a procurement system or two in terms of consultants and contractors and third parties. And of course, try and work with the finance function to try and look at how budget then relates to if we spend this dollar on permanent resource or this dollar on contractor or this dollar on consulting, how does that look in the round? And I haven't yet seen organizations get that right. And that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's just, I think, as we're coming out of the pandemic, to your point, the opportunity is now for organizations, particularly as many organizations will have very tight financial circumstances then I, I think it's an, it's an absolute business necessity. And going back to the first point that we both said, if you've got a clear business necessity, then it should happen. Yeah, and I, and I totally agree with what you're saying about kind of pulling all the different strands of information together. I mean, there's definitely much more of, a, of an acceptance of 
best of breed technology in specific areas. You know, a permanent hiring platform clearly is, is predicated towards different things to a contingent hiring platform or a procurement system. Um, and one thing that we see is a lot, of, lot more people centralizing data through a, a central analytics tool. So you might have dashboards within, an exist, within a specific system that's dealing with services spend, for example, but then information going all centralized within Power BI or SciSense or something like that. So um, that then allows the individual functions to do what they need to do on an operational level and have your best of breed workflows managing different areas, but then centralize that data so you can make those strategic inferences. And I think within a lot of organizations, contingent workforce data is much better um, served than uh, services procurement data. There's a lot of complexity around that and it's an emerging area. Obviously it's a, very much a focus for us, but I yeah. think what you can only really properly assess all of your available resources when you can see everything that's happening and understand the ROI on it. And that's, you know, there are, there are genuine ways to do that, but it requires that information. It requires process behind it. Um, but then that can then loop up and it can support this strategic decision-making process. Um, but it's just that, you know, a CFO or a CEO, they just need to really be able to understand what is the most effective use of my resources. And if they can, if they have that information and they can tie that into a clear plan, then that's got to be a, a, a great route forward for success. I think, and I, I agree with that, Johnny. I think I probably just kind of interrupt a wee bit there because I think everything you've said up to that point is true. The exam question that that solves is what have we got today and how is it made up? And the gap still that I've seen throughout my career and I'm sure is still prevalent today is the what do we need in two years time? What's the forward looking story? And that's simply because business does not properly articulate in a clear way the future skills it needs in a way in which HR and other functions can go out working together and actually drive the proper strategic workforce plan. So all that analytical, and there are some great organizations and some great tools now to bring all that data together in a much clearer way. Data warehouse techniques have come on leaps and bounds in the last five years, but it still tells you what has happened, mm. not really what you need. And it's, you know, it's the classic thing I used to say about CFOs. They're very good at telling you what happened last year and not necessarily what you need to be doing other than a very high level picture going forward and so you you, you know the business life needs to spend more time properly looking forward and saying what do we think we need and and you know even today everybody say oh we need more digital skills of course you need more digital skills exactly how many exactly on what particular aspect of digital and what's your budget and how do you wish to to kind of bring that capability into your organization because increasingly particularly with digital people with those skills don't want to be permanent employees they they're coming up with a whole raft of different economic models for providing resource to companies wanting to build digital capabilities and the organization still thinking we need to hire 50 digital programmers in china because we've got a digital platform we want to launch. That, you know, so there's a bit of old thinking in a new world, and then you've got the kind of multiplier effect of, and the new world in a post-pandemic world, which will raise some of the questions that we talked about earlier on, about, you know, how people want to work in the future. 
so so clearly to actually move towards this objective organizations need to be asking the right questions they need to be facilitating the process with the right tools they need to have clear business objectives um, they need the c-suite support and there's they need the right mind mindset within the business um, when when we talk about this kind of future future planning do you see a clear place where that responsibility sits and a clear function when that responsibility sits or do you think there is almost room for a new category here of specialist um and i i, I had an interesting conversation um recently with um with bruce from allegis and um basically he was talking about this idea of a work design architect this conceptual role of you know he's very much uh, a future thinker. Um, he was in, and basically sort of saying, is there, is there an opportunity for a role that's specifically designed to be sitting there looking at all the information that's going on in the business, looking at the trends in the market and really driving towards saying this, this type of role is going to come up in five years. And is that going to be an important part of the infrastructure or, you know, so, so that's Bruce Morton's point of, of to, there, there's an opportunity there. Um, and he, he wrote a book about this sort of stuff um, prior to the pandemic, which then the pandemic kind of accelerated some of his suggestions. Mm, but if you look at that and you look at um, the roles that exist, do you see that capability being something that is already there or does it need separating out? I think some of the skills you've described do exist. Um, I think part of the challenge that that brings is they exist in parts of roles in different parts of the function. So inevitably, job design, in my opinion, is a core HR skill and has been for many, many years. Um, the challenge has been job design has kind of sat in two camps. You've got the job design kind of org design bit, which a good HR function would probably have a capability in. And then you've got part of the kind of fulfillment of that sat between resourcing, talent management, and then even compensation and benefits getting involved in terms of job size, because that then determines, you know, quite a lot of things. So I think job design in its strategic sense has, has, has sat as a potential capability in HR, but has been fragmented. Um, does it exist in its pure form? Probably, I'm sure. I'm sure some tech firms probably have something that resonates along these lines. Um, I've not seen it myself, but I, I would be surprised if, particularly, you know, in kind of biotech or or technology more generally, particularly where they've got long life cycles for product. I would imagine that it's a key part of the, the capabilities to plan forward all of the skills you need to bring that product to market and all the revenues that that then brings. It's not my experience, but I would imagine that that's 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 more prevalent in that kind of those kind of sectors. Should it, should it exist? Yeah, should it should. And I think I think personally, I think it's a core skill of HR, and I think there is a role in HR for somebody to be effectively strategic workforce planning or head of strategic workforce planning but there's a whole different podcast we could do about the pros and cons of that to be honest 
Yeah, I, I think the thing I find interesting about it is the concept of job design versus work design. Yeah, precisely. And I think, you know, as you alluded to there, it's the, the, the forward planning within an organisation is tied to the organisation's clear direction, um, clear sponsorship on that being important. Um, and it's down to the, these just overall objectives. What does the business need to do? And then what does the business need to achieve to get there? And that's that could be, uh, that's just work that needs to be done. That's just effort and objectives and outcomes. Um, and then I think that that's where there's, there's a real opportunity to unpick that information and work out what's the most effective way to do it. Um, I mean, we definitely have seen recruitment MSPs within the market starting to offer really quite sophisticated services around um, kind of bringing all of this information together. But I think organizations are also looking at this as well. Um, yeah. You know, because it, it ties into like generally the war for the war for talent, the war for skills, whatever it is, is you know, yeah. everybody wants the best stuff. Everybody wants the, the new in demand stuff. But to your point earlier, people, people want to work differently now. And, and I think it also ties into some of the softer stuff, more brand related things around big organizations that are becoming more and more and more and more. The most important thing is their brand and what that represents, because that really ties into the ability to get work done as well. Yeah. Um, in the sense that does your does your culture and and actually does your supply chain reflect the values that you are trying to put out to the market? And I think that's an area that um, for anyone looking in a, for on a future basis, yes, it's which skills, but it's also how are we going to attract the right suppliers and workers and employees to deliver that in the totally. way that the workforce has changed. Totally, and I, and I you know that's work in progress. I think for a lot of organisations. I think you, you still have some traditional mindsets, probably because I've spent most of my time in some of the more traditional sectors. Um, but I, I do believe that I, I, it's fairly inevitable that, that, that organizations will hone and develop their mindsets and their models uh, in respect of you know, how they resource. And as I've mentioned earlier on, you know, having to think a, a little bit more about, you know, do we engage that small niche consultancy firm, even though with this mega bank, and we normally only deal with mega third parties, mega third parties might not exist with specific skills you need to get a product or get a product particularly to market, particularly new markets or emerging markets. So, you know, I... I am convinced that organizations are going to have to change some of their mindsets. Just going back to something else you said, you know, um, so HR functions more recently have been spending a lot of time looking at things like target operating models, ways of working, practices. So so kind of going beyond that job design to the work design, a lot of the, the effort in, in those areas has been about getting an optimum work design template but probably with a lot narrower parameters than you're inferring. And I, and I agree with that inference as well, that it's a good start, but much more needs to be done. I mean, the classic example I've seen is an HR function, sometimes annoying the business leadership about spans and layers, as opposed to having a proper strategic conversation about how work gets done around here and what are the options and how can we do this more effectively, rather than go, your span of control should be eight and your layers should be no more than six. So it's become a bit of a task 
the way a lot of HR functions have deployed it rather than get into a much more strategic conversation about proper work design. So I just wanted to kind of circle back on that point because you kind of prompted something that, you know, again, I've experienced in the past. Yeah, that's a very interesting one. So do you think in some, with when you're looking at, for example, spans and layers, is it just too formulaic for the, the operating environment we're in at the moment? And it's, you know, it's, it's applying something that, you, as you say, that could annoy the business because the CEO is looking at that and going, well, you're, you're addressing this at, at this level, but what we want to do is address everything at this level of this is our objective. How do we most yeah. effectively achieve that? Yeah, I mean, with, without overly criticising the profession, I'm, a, I'm still a member of, you know, when, when organisations start doing nine box grids for talent, which is a good model to try and segment talent into different areas so that you can then prioritise limited spend towards development, however organisations do it. That then became a tool by which HR just made operational and, and we lost the strategic value out of it. Then you look at kind of performance management and HR, they're again going back to the business and saying, here's your performance shape, it should be a bell curve. You've not got enough lower performers in your bell curve and you need to go again and they're going. So you turn what could be a good management tool in terms of challenge decision-making into an operational pain in the backside, quite frankly. And so then, you know, here we are, here's another model, spans and layers, you know, your spans and layers, the good practice suggests spans and layers should be this, 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 and this. It says in the textbook here, or X consultancy have told us this is what it should be. And it's deployed again. And then it, you know, it just becomes a task by which we, we forget to engage. So I, I think the HR capability that is, is a passion of mine that is still lacking is the ability to take for quite helpful tool sit down with the right decision makers and use that tool as a facilitation support not as a blunt instrument you need to fill in this grid etc etc and and it is a hr capability gap that still exists today in many hr functions that ability to take what could be a good strategic tool and use it and deploy it really successfully for the business as opposed to operationalizing it dumbing it down and then it just becomes a transaction yeah, I guess it's not the end game, is it? It's it's all about what these tools deliver, um, and again, yes. that I think that yeah, comes back to that, and I think it comes back to that overall strategic responsibility for an organisation to say where are we going, what we're we doing, what do we need to achieve, because otherwise, how can you possibly gauge results anyway? Um, to be fair to people in in HR functions or other functions where the business is saying, but what does that mean? Is it good or bad? Well, what are we trying to do? What's the objective? Yeah. Where are we trying to get to? Um, yeah. I think there is some some real challenges for HR functions at the moment. I think there are also some massive opportunities. I mean, Great. even if you just look at traditionally, I would say that HR um, would be more viewed as being orientated towards people rather than necessarily task. And the world has definitely moved. There's been a shift towards uh, um, you know an increase in task based orientation whether that's the gig economy, whether it's the increasing use of outsourced services. Um, you know, how do you measure people when they're working remotely? You know, do you, you don't want to put a, do you want to put a screen monitor on them or to find out that they're not watching Netflix or, or actually you're going to judge them on what they actually deliver. So mm. I think the people versus task element, I find that very interesting as a bit of a conundrum for businesses to address. And it may be that 
task sits in one area and people sits in another area and it needs to be looped up under a central function. Or it may be that HR have the opportunity to address task and how that applies to people. But what's your what's your kind of uh, gut reaction on that side of things? <laughs> That's a really good, really good question. Sum that up in a two minute answer. Um, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a real challenge because, you know, if I'm reaching into my own personal experience, I could make a, I could make a case for both sides and something different as well. So let's let's try and agree on some things. Um, a virtual world has made task management more harder to manage for a lot of managers, or a lot harder to see for a lot of managers. And it really depends on the sector and the business that you do, as to whether you feel you can measure outcomes easily or not. So if you're somebody who's managing a virtual call center, then you can very easily see the metrics that that particular operator has managed in any one period. You know when they were online, you know when they're offline, just as it was in a real call center. So managing the task of, you know, how much have they done today and what's the outcomes today, easy. Um, in the kind of more knowledge economy type work, where you should be measuring on outputs, but I fear too many managers were still managing on inputs. And so therefore having their resources gaggled around them in a nice office was, was more comfortable to them. That has been a real challenge for those type of managers that like to see the work effort, the input, and probably traditionally have been less comfortable with just measuring by outputs. I think, you know, we didn't need a pandemic to open that up or not. That was a trend that was happening anyway, which was yeah. the world was moving more towards an output desire, but still had some leaders. And I spent a lot of time with managers and leaders, and we still have some managers and leaders who would be honest in a quiet coaching conversation, say, yeah, you know, this working from home is great, but I can't wait to get everybody back in the office. And, you know, you have a sneaking feeling there that you know really why that is. And that's because they want to see inputs, not just, just try and measure outputs. I think part of it also is because many organisations just aren't very good at managing expectations about outputs. So what do I expect from a, you know, HR function, for example, it, it, over the next year? It's not something that um, we're very good at. Um, and there's a reason why a lot of large organizations are pulling back on their performance management systems because they just weren't fit for purpose because they, it, 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 was, it was neither measuring the inputs or the outputs very effectively, but was a very cumbersome process for many involved. And then I guess to, to, your, to my final point to build on the, the kind of challenge, um, the pandemic has made engaging with people more importantly, more important. And whether you manage by task or whether you manage by output or whether you manage by engaging your people, the challenge for leadership in a virtual world has, you know, been very significantly enhanced. Um, and I do have a lot of empathy with leaders who are trying to manage people in many different personal circumstances. 
because you see a nice zoom screen and some of us can even afford to put a back screen on it <laughs> but actually behind that you don't know what's going on in 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 behind the facade of a, of a false screen um you know if you take hong kong for example there's many people working from home in very small spaces sometimes with three generations of family in behind the screen so um yeah i think i think leading leading in a you know global pandemic lockdown working from home ideally world has been really challenging and and i think a lot of leaders are you know coming through that now but a lot of people are also struggling to kind of you know work out you started with this point what's the new norm um and I think this people versus task thing is is just one of the many factors that's out there at the moment. Yeah, I think you make a great point there. Um, several great points, in fact. But just to hone in on one of them, you know, in some ways, the 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 situation we're in at the moment has made task more important because what's actually getting done, you can't, you know, we don't want any kind of fluffy, blurry metrics around this. What's actually happening? What's actually getting done? What's it actually doing for the business? And how does that affect this overall objective that we're talking about? But as you rightly point out, people have become more important and how you look after people has become even more critical. Because like you say, you know, it's, it's brought, um, I think the, the pandemic in some ways has leveled the playing field a lot. It's been a, it's been a great leveler in some ways because you have, I, I feel like you have much more person to person type interactions. You know, it's less about walking into a big shiny office and all the recruitments that, that are associated with a big, powerful organisation. You're dealing with an individual in their house, you know, on a video call where there might be something, you know, a baby crying in the background or, you know, as a beginning of our call, I'm not sure if you heard it, there was some sort of mower going along the street. Yeah. Uh, hopefully yeah. it didn't, uh, yeah. did, did, wasn't too uh, audible. But, um, you know, in, a, in an office situation, people don't bring, generally, don't bring their personal issues to work. But now people who are managing teams and, and, and working on that people basis, it's unavoidable that you're going to have situations where people are like, oh, well, I've got to take the kids to school or, you know, I've got to do X and Y and, um, and or it's difficult to do a meeting at a particular time because of their personal circumstances at home. You know, who's going to get the quiet room today sort of thing. Um, so I think you make a really, really good point. And I think that's one of the that's one of the, the questions that I think is really interesting around this whole thing of the evolving role of HR and people versus task um and and that's something that i'm very interested to see how it plays out within organizations that are really transforming at the moment because both are just so important um and it, it's almost like both have got more important um but maybe it's that that the essence of addressing people and the essence of addressing task have elevated and become more important than this is what the rule book says in, in the sense yeah, that yeah, I, I agree with that. I think to an extent, the rule books, you know, it's out the window a wee bit um, because basically we have to start again. I think in many organizations, we have to say, well, how do we want to operate? Um, it's raising fundamental questions. I mean, we know from a business perspective, for many businesses, and I come from 30 years of banking, there's no doubt that banking and digitalization of banking and customer acceptance of the digital banking world has been accelerated. You know, it's probably gone through five years of maturity in 12 months in many, many markets, including Hong Kong, which traditionally is a very 
paper-driven like to go into the branch world, very traditional banking model. And they, they, they're taking to digitalization here very, very rapidly. Um, so tasks will become more automated. They will become subject to better technology. They are therefore becoming more important in many ways. But over time, that will just be something that happens my belief and you know this is doing what i do but my belief is the people is the bit that you need to focus your energy on going forward how do you engage people in a digitized world how do you engage people in you know i see 2020 as a bit of a practice run for what life beyond 2025 might be for us all and if we look at mental well-being and we look at some of the other aspects that we're learning about now as data is starting to be analyzed you know, there's a lot of hard work needs to be done in the next three, four, five years to make sure that we create the workplaces of the future that engage people, look after their health and well-being, and emotionally connect, and also connect with them emotionally. You know, the rise of emotional intelligence is something that I'm, I'm sure will be more and more prevalent over the next five years, and one of the reasons why I've started to spend a bit of time on that that subject as well in my coaching. Yeah, that's that must be a really interesting area of coaching, and and you know I think that that emotional connection it applies to any type of talent that an organisation are bringing in, really, because it as I said before about this brand, what the brand represents, what the purpose of the organisation is, that's become more important. Whether you're engaging with, and we've seen it in, in certain areas of the supply chain, even where social cultural issues have come up. And suppliers have even said, I don't want to work with that end organization anymore because I don't agree with their stance on a particular issue. Um, and so that emotional connection, you know, behind, you know, behind a perm employee, a contractor or a supplier delivering outsourced services, there are still people. And that emotional connection, yeah, as you say, is very, very important. Um, and it ties into this whole brand and purpose type presentation. When you're, when you're coaching leaders on that side of things, I'm assuming you probably see quite a spread of some people are naturally good at that sort of stuff. Some people, it needs to be a bit more of a learned skill. But do do you see people automatically appreciating the value of it? Or is there a bit of an education piece around that? Yeah, more of the latter than the former, I think, Johnny. I think the interesting um, observation, just tying in with something that you said earlier, in the world of Zoom or Teams, what happens tends to happen, and we did this before we press record, is you have a little connection. You know, how's your dog? How's the children? How's your mother-in-law? Whatever it might be, right? And that's what you do. Yeah. And to your earlier point, if that was in the office, you wouldn't have, it's unlikely you'll have that because you turn up often one or two minutes late because you've been waiting to get the coffee machine, coffee at the coffee machine. You sit down, agenda's read out, and you start going. So what you don't get is that connection as much, which is counter what I said earlier on, of course, which is actually when you've got physical proximity, it's easier to just kind of settle in and, con and converse and chat, but we don't do it because we're obsessed with, your, back to your point, the tasks. But when you have, you know, once you've got over, every Zoom call starts with the same thing. You're on mute, you know, <laughs> I can't, you, know you haven't turned on your video, and then you go, you know, how to house something. And so there's, there's, it's only usually 30 seconds, but there's a wee connection. And you tend to do it every time. 
And if you're in the office, you don't tend to do that so much. It almost the, 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 the process of connecting, literally connecting online, forces you to do a little bit of chit chat. And every time you do that, you're building a little bit more of an understanding. I am convinced that managers know a lot more about their people now in a virtual world because they're going through this process. They know the name of the dog. They know the name of the children. They know where they live, et cetera, et cetera. They might not have bothered their time before to find that stuff out. So I do think, I, I, do, I am an optimist and I do think that some of the experiences that we've all had online in the last 12 months have taught us some things. But as always with humans, I think we need to try and embed them and make them become rituals and common practice. And I think the challenge, going back to your question, the challenge for me as a coach is to try and encourage leaders. What have you learned about leading in a, in a lockdown virtual environment? What can you take from that into the workplace? And what didn't you get in that? And what will you bring in back or accentuate in the workplace? And if you are staying in a virtual world, what will you do different? So it's forcing that reflection, which is what a good coach should always do. Force the reflection for every leader to think about how can I be a better leader next year than I was this, learning from what happened last year. And, and that for me is, is, you know, that's why I've kind of moved into coaching to kind of bring more of that perspective into, into what I do. Yeah, and you know, it's as you say, it's that personal connection from from just being, as I said, it's kind of leveled the playing field a bit. You're talking to someone, and they might be that day, they might be in the dining room um, because there's, they can't can't go in a different room or whatever it might be. So you're just getting a, a window. It, people aren't necessarily wearing business dress so much. The facade is kind of dropped a little bit. But we've also all got like a common problem that everybody around the world is dealing with, which is just totally unique in our lifetimes um that that just this there's this one thing that everybody knows about and everybody's got possibly got you know, have some issues because of whether it's affecting the logistics or the lifestyle or you know family members or you know illness etc so yeah i do think that you've got this weird conundrum of people coming closer together more disconnected in an ideal world you know i'm an optimist as well totally um, and I think in an ideal world, if you blend the two, there are some real benefits that can be taken from both. And hopefully that creates, a, it has, it, it's been a different way of working has been created. Um, and there's no going back from that. And hopefully we can take the best bits from all of it. Like you say, blended use of offices. You don't have to be in an office every day, have a bit more flexibility. Again, people, task as well, because actually if that person is being treated um, in a manner that's more creates more flexibility for them, they might be better at getting the task completed. And it's not a question of how long are you sitting in front of that computer? Are you there nine to five? Did you get the task done? What is the task? But also, if you're looking after the person, they're in a better position to be able to deliver that task. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting area of discussion. And, you know, think of all the, think of all the studies and textbooks that will be written on, the, on this period in time. But, um, yeah, there's some, some really interesting kind of learnings coming out of it. Let's just say with, with the coaching side, it must be um, very interesting for you hearing the stories and seeing what seeing how it's affecting people um, to move on to a slightly more uh, uh, kind of focused uh, and specialist topic a topic area that's possibly a little bit more boring in some ways but that is uh, is 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 having a big impact certainly in the UK um, I wanted to just get your opinion on how organizations HR in particular are addressing the problem of regulatory change 
So in the UK, we obviously have the reforms to the IR35 legislation, which deem whether somebody is employed or self-employed and put that responsibility now in the hands of the end hiring organisation or the, or the, the, the paying organisation effectively. Um, that's coming into play in the UK very shortly. Um, but but we've, seen, we've seen similar types of things happening in places like California. You know, if you look at the US 1099 versus W2 laws, there's, there's the movement toward, more towards this type of thing. Seen similar things in various European countries. I would expect governments around the world to take more of this sort of approach where they're sort of saying, hang on a minute, there's too many gray areas, taxes, income taxes slipping through our fingers and people aren't doing things the right way. We need to get on top of this. But, but in terms of how you're how, how are you seeing companies address this what's your what's your what's your kind of take on that from what you're seeing in the market yeah uh, a great question i mean undoubtedly if you go back to first principles why are governments encouraging this right basically tax revenues are leaking um and so there is a push in many jurisdictions to increase tax revenues you throw a global pandemic and all the financial consequence of that, then there's only one direction of travel from what I see, and that's yet more pushing into collecting every single tax dollar that you can legitimately for the right reasons. And there is a perception that the um, contractor market, I guess, to use the UK definition, is an area where there has been significant tax leakage or missed tax opportunities as far as the HMRC is concerned. So obviously we have the changes to IR35 as you referenced them, and in other jurisdictions, the same theme, the same drivers is causing the same reaction, which will, will create their version of the same thing. The challenge with IR35 or managing and mitigating IR35, it plays to the very thing that we talked quite a lot about earlier on, which is how good are organisations at strategic workforce planning. And as we know from spending time together on other events, we know that there are business leaders who liked the more flexible use of contractors because whatever knotty regulatory problem was thrown at them this week, they could phone, they could throw their contractor resource at that, spend four or five weeks noodling that, out comes a project, and then they throw that same contractor because they've got a set of generic skills onto the next problem. And, and you know, I, I spent a lot of time in banking and contractors were a significant part of the resource deployed to address post-global financial crisis remediation, along with the big consultancies a lot of resource and a lot of cost was spent on remediating either data, files, processes, or technology to make banking more secure and stable for the future according to the changes in regulation. So then to go back, back a bit narrower to the question, I guess, that you're really asking, which is, you know, how good are functional responsibilities in readiness for some of these changes? I, I guess there's two perspectives. One is these changes aren't always terribly clear when they're first announced. So there's a lot of guesswork goes on. And IR35, it was weird because I was involved in a bit of IR35 planning in, in a previous life. And we had this weird situation where everybody in the market was saying, we're not quite sure what HMRC would do. 
yet they'd introduced exactly the same regulations to the public sector three years before. So, you know, as I was saying to a lot of people, well, maybe they're just going to do that because that's what they've already done in public sector. So, you know, as always, what can we learn from the public sector? And to an extent we couldn't, and to an extent we couldn't. And because it, it preys back onto this, how good is business in articulating a very clear demand and how good is HR and others functions in supporting that demand and then thinking about resource solutions to solve for it. And so that whole kind of IR35 contractor debate is, is, has become a bit of a catalyst for the broader conversation about strategic workforce planning. And it, it's a driver for better conversations for that. How prepared are organizations? I think everybody will get through it. Um, they'll noodle their way through it. It won't be perfect. Um, but, 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 you know, things, things, think the rule is coming in. It's what, three weeks away now or two and a half weeks away. Um, so organizations will have to finally, you know, get over the, get over the challenges they had. And there's undoubtedly, without naming, you know, culprits, um, there are undoubtedly really good examples of just why HMRC are tightening the legislation here because, you know, there are many examples in firms I have seen where contractors have been around in organisations more than five years, more than six years, more than seven years, more than eight years, which by anybody's definition of, of, of contractor is not a contractor. So, um, so I, I, it, it, it's a healthy um, challenge to business to sort out its practices in terms of resource management and resource planning um, about, you know, statements of works and articulating what's required at the outset. Um, and you can see the purpose of it. Hopefully organisations will, will come to a settled point in managing it over the next few weeks and months. Yeah, as you say, it's very much a catalyst. It's a very strong catalyst in the market for people to address it's forcing them to address this specific issue you know the use of contractors isn't going to go away it's just got to be done via very a set of rules um i was almost going to say then a very set a specific set of rules but actually there's a lot of gray areas which is one of the reasons people have you know one of the things that people have found very tricky about it um but you know the use of contractors is not going to go away it just needs to be managed more closely <coughs> pardon me, and it has made organisations address more widely, well, what other ways are there of getting work done? How are we getting work done at the moment? Which, which is, you know, raises the important point of addressing, before you even think about how you're going to resource something, what is it you need to get done? And then what's yeah. the most effective way to resource that? Um, whereas I think, you know, in a lot of cases already, people will automatically just be thinking about um, headcount without even assessing what the outcome might need to be um, and it can there can be maybe a slightly lax attitude to as you say if contractors are sat there for a very very long period of time what are they actually doing what are they actually mm. delivering um, and actually from an organization's point of view is it really that effective to just have this resource model that is based on very woolly objectives ties into our the, you know this very center point of our discussion around objectives and and where you want to get to um, and who manages them as well, I think, um, Johnny, because I still, I still think, you know, HR is very clearly seen as, as owning the employee value proposition, if you will, with lots of the inputs and supports from business. But HR is really the function that's looking at employed people. Consultants, 
tend to be owned by the business with lots of good support from procurement. These contract population, who actually owns them? And it all, they, you know, historically, one of the reasons why contractors stayed for so long is because it was, it was the easiest solution for everybody involved. You know, procurement just got a template, a single person lost, you know, a private company template, rolled it out 50 times, that was done. HR didn't really get involved and didn't really want to get involved because, you know, if we start talking about contractors with the function that looks after employees, then we're starting to do the risks about the, 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 the legislation, you know, hidden employment is trying to address in the first place, they should be employees. Um, and then on the on the other side, you've got the operational world going, well, you know, it's procurement, it's HR, it's everybody else. It's not me that's owning this population. So so I think contractors were a wee bit like left out there. And 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 then you know that you've got a technology function that was using that resource predominantly more than anybody else in many organizations. And so they see it as their resource, but not really wanting to get their hands dirty in the, in the operational challenges of it. And I certainly saw that in, in the IR35 planning, trying to bring together operations, technology, who was a big demand user there, um, HR, procurement, finance, just trying to get everybody into one shape was the biggest challenge I had for the first three or four months, trying to just noodle everybody together to, to make sure that they, they cooperated and worked together well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, a pretty complex and, and uh, tricky strategic issue for a lot of companies I know that are kind of grappling with it at the moment. I have to hope that in the spirit of optimism, some positive changes come out of it um, in the sense of, um, you know, maybe better permanent opportunities for people that, that maybe if the, if the permanent opportunities were better, they wouldn't want to be a contractor anyway. But also for the people that do, that want to be a contractor and work through their own um, limited company, clearer objectives, maybe potentially even more fulfillment around what they're actually delivering. Um, and maybe it will uh, cause people to increase their portfolio and for companies to facilitate contractors to increase their portfolio um, and just you know really, really clear working practices. Maybe where in the past, things have been put upon contractors that probably shouldn't be put upon contractors because they're not rewarded in the same way as a permanent employee and they don't get the benefits that a permanent employee might have. And therefore they, you know, they've been asked to things, do things that maybe aren't necessarily appropriate, which possibly could be caught by some of the rules around I-35. Um, and then from a business point of view, you know, the business clearly assessing what are they doing? Uh, you know, what are the objectives? What are the options of how they can get that work done and how they can most effectively go and do it where, um, you know, you mentioned statement of work be as, a, as a work delivery model. You know, people are addressing that more now, but they should have been addressing it anyway, because it's not the be all and end all, but it's a way of getting work done that is going to be most most suited to particular areas, where the other areas are going to be most suited to hiring a contractor. Other areas are going to be best delivered under a permanent resource. So yeah. it's forcing companies to clear that up. I think the the potential kind of downsides, which hopefully will only be in the short term, is where people are making really blanket decisions, and, and which which is effectively almost saying it's too much of a thorny issue to try and solve directly. Um, but I think that ties into uh, you know I can understand why some businesses might feel in that position, particularly if they're in um, you know in an area where which forces you to be particularly risk averse. Um, but I think in having to solve these problems hopefully there are some potential positive outcomes that, that will arise from it. Yeah, um, and I, I, do, I do agree with your optimism. I, one note of caution, and the note of caution is 
too often, particularly in growth of companies. Permanent headcount is used as an indicator of both past and future cost. And many organizations, when they present to the market, as you know, as well as I do, they'll talk about FTE and permanent headcount as a lever in terms of an indicator of just how much and how serious an organization is about cost management. So when we were talking about, you know, IR35 launches in two and a half weeks time, there's part of me that says the worst year you could ever bring that rule in is the one that is marked the year after the major global pandemic and the one where all the financial chickens come home to roost for many organizations. At the time when, I like your optimism, at the time when you would hope the legislation will drive in, let's turn quite a lot of these contractors to the permanent employees they always should have been. The problem with that is it will take up FTE and no CFO or CEOs want to go into the market and say, by the way, you know, we borrowed all that money on that bond over the next five years and made some very strong promises financially to the market that we can afford it. We're just going to increase our FTE by, you know, 8% in the next six months. No CFO CEO is going to do that. So because, because we've got this weird thing in quoted markets where FTE is seen as a quasi cost, even though you and I know actually quite often a contractor in total cost management terms is much more expensive than a permanent employee to the organization. So even allowing for the tax that you need to, to, to pay. So I like the optimism. I agree with most of the optimism. My note of caution is that the behavioral pattern of the way that we manage permanent FTE in the past also needs to change. We need to get a bit better at talking about real cost the total resource cost, not here's our FTE numbers and the fact we spend, you know, 400 million on contractors and consultants every year is sitting down on page 28 of the notes, the FTE you'll read quite early on. And it's just, a, it's a behavioral thing that we've all got into and we need to kind of step back a wee bit because it's actually not telling the market the, be- the right piece of information in the first place anyway. But the total picture is hard to tell, which is why we don't do it. And it goes back to how we started this conversation which is the total picture is really hard to get. That is such an interesting point. I really hadn't considered it from that angle. Um, And it just, it highlights the fact of how some companies probably feel quite snookered at the moment with all of these things going on and all of these different pressures to try and solve all these problems at once. Like you say, it's all of the chickens uh, coming home to roost at the same time. Yeah, that's a a fascinating point. um, but again, with my uh, kind of p- possible blatant over-optimism, maybe that could be a catalyst for positive change in the sense of organisations having to get more transparency on, you know, what are we doing at the moment? What are we spending on? Um, you know, a lot of organisations are concerned about risk in their procurement tail spend, where they might have disguised contractors or even, you know, disguised employment stuff going on within their tail spend of, of statement of work, for example. Um, hidden kind of below procurement thresholds that, that's maybe not really managed effectively. We're seeing a lot of that type of conversation coming out at the moment. But if you gain visibility on all of these areas, you know, you're going to take a better approach to looking after your employees and valuing your employees for what the company is delivering. And you're also going to have more recognition of the different options you have to get work done and how effective there are. they are. You might have some areas of ways in which an organisation is getting work done which are massively wasteful. 
but they're, because they're not identified, yeah. because again, people are working to the rule book, there's a headcount freeze, therefore I'll do it this way. Um, you know, those, those sort of things, the, the pandemic is going to force people to have to address that um, cultural setup. Um, but, but clearly, as you say, there's going to be pushback from that because that's the way that people have, have operated for many years and that's their approach to it. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a fascinating time and it's going to be very interesting to see how companies adapt. But, you know, there are, there are various things in play in the market that should allow companies to adapt faster. Um, and as I say, you know, if, if they're able to offer better permanent employees, if they can get uh, permanent options and they can get over that hurdle, then that's going to be really, people are going to feel valued. People are going to have better opportunities, like I say, who maybe would trend towards actually wanting to go perm if the opportunity was good enough. And for the really, you know, the contractors who want to stay as contractors, you know, many of them are hugely valuable, hugely valuable resource that that company is really going to struggle to, to do oh. without. So they need to recognize them more, treat them in the right way um, and make the effort to maintain the service delivery that they want to be getting from these, these areas of expertise, but doing it in a compliant manner, which maybe they've been able to kind of just not really have to bother about before. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, the, the fact that we've got this regulatory change happening in the UK, plus the backdrop of the pandemic, and then you throw Brexit in there, it's a hugely challenging and interesting situation. Um, and, you know, different people are taking knee jerks in different directions. I definitely think overall it is driving the um, recognition of outsourcing because, you know, it's seen as an alternative to other work delivery models. And with things like Brexit, you know, the the kind of, access to talent aspect of it i think you know it's possibly going to drive that outsourcing model as well but the bottom line is it's already massive and it's not really been effectively addressed so um the change you'll see in it is is just the the icing on the cake of this giant underlying problem um and as you say it's unearthing problems around the way that contractors are engaged and it's unearthing problems around around the way that permanent employees are considered and recognized within an organization and and very nicely ties back to our original point about um, the overall objectives and direction and, the, and the, this key of the strategic workforce plan. So um, I think there's some hugely interesting uh, kind of challenges and times ahead of us. Any, uh, any particular predictions from yourself over, the, uh, obviously at the moment, predictions are mostly kind of off the table because <laughs> who knows what's happening. But over the next kind of six to 12 months, are there any particular kind of key things that you're expecting to see, particularly from that, at that leadership level? Great question. I think the we we've we've covered most of what I believe will be occupying leaders' minds. So, getting back to the new normal, whatever that is for whatever company. Um, so it's it's that iteration of somewhere between what we were and valued, what we've just experienced, and what we now need for the the, the probably more digitalized world that we're now performing in. That's I think exam question number one, I think maybe this goes hand in hand. Exam question number two is how the hell do we solve the financial predicaments that many of us have? Because, you know, for many industries, particularly travel, entertainment, really, really struggling. And, you know, that the, the way they financed the, um, securing them their existence has been 
probably at great future expense. So organizations are going to spend a lot of time and leaders in organizations are going to spend a lot of time in the next six months. They're going to properly have to plan their financial future to meet those obligations, which will probably mean more downsizing, more structural downsizing, as opposed to furloughing everybody or taking 10% out like many did last year just to survive. What you that, that cost comes back over time unless you properly structurally change it. So many organizations, many leaders in organizations are going to have to spend the next six, six months planning for what is their financial model three, four, five years, and what does that mean both to their organizational model and their resource model, which is obviously a point of interest for us. Uh, so, you, so you've got the kind of the behavioral bit and how do we operate in the new world? You've got the financial bit, which is what does that mean for you know, processes, people, technology, and, and product. And then I guess the third aspect is, is some sectors are, are really damaged as sectors. Mm. And so, you know, again, airline industry would probably yeah, be the, the best example, right? And so how do you compete, but also collaborate with other players in your market to secure a longer term future. So the best example of that is how do organizations and then governments coordinate who can travel where? You know, do you, do you have vaccine passports? Do you have, you know, if you've had um, a vaccine in a certain jurisdiction, does that give you, you know, no quarantine, five days quarantine? You know, here in Hong Kong at the moment, if you come in from anywhere, and a lot of places, by the way, you can't come in from, um, you, you're subject to three three weeks mandatory quarantine. Mm. Um, and no debate, right? You, and you're, you're in a hotel room and you're not allowed to open the windows, you're not allowed to go out, right? So there's some industry-wide, sector-wide, governmental-wide things that some leaders are going to have to play in as well. And that reminds me a wee bit, like the, I was heavily involved in the post-global financial crisis and got involved in some quite knotty problems in terms of compensation and benefits and how you report conduct and so on and so forth. And what you saw is the whole industry had to change and change some behaviours that it had held good. So obviously, as I said, number one is about your own organisation. Number two is about your financial promises. Number three is how you contribute to sectoral changes or themes within your sector that need a, a collaborative approach to solving for. So I think that off the top of my head is kind of three things that would certainly keep me awake at night if I was a CEO of a company, particularly of an airline. Yeah, I think the way you put that is really powerful. And um, yeah, there's, uh, there's, I'm sure there'll be many people uh, listening to that and absolutely identifying with those challenges. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully there will be clear routes for them to move forward and, and we'll start seeing people emerging who are setting the trends and doing things differently. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully many businesses as possible can come out of this and be stronger and, and better Certainly. to work for. And, and, we, uh, and we know adversity is a great kind of crucible for innovation. And, you know, you can't get any more adverse than a lot of organisations are finding themselves today. It's a time for innovation and creativity. So many organisational leaders need to harness that as best they can. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a nice positive note to finish off our conversation. I did try. <laughs> I really, really appreciate all of your insights, 
um, and opinions. It's, it's been fantastic chatting to you, and I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I've enjoyed it too. Thank excellent you. stuff. Well, listen, thank you very much. All the best with everything, and um, I'll hopefully catch up with you again yeah, soon. Yeah, catch up with you soon. Thanks, Johnny. See you Cheers. later.